I'm sitting here in my own house, minding my own Welcome to High Camp, the podcast where I try to watch all 406 movies from an out-of-print gay film guide before I die. I'm your host, Brian Rucker. And I am thrilled to have uh, our guest here today. He is a film critic, the reviews editor for The Wrap, the host of my favorite movie podcast in the world, Linoleum Knife, and a million other things. It's Alonzo Duraldi. Hey, thanks hey, for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so excited. Uh, that you're going to be here and talking about, I guess, one of your favorite movies? Or? Oh, definitely. One that I've I've seen far more times than I ever should have. But uh, I hope I'm the first in a parade of elderly gay men you have on this show because this is the, this is the, cover, <laughs> the, 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 the county you're covering. Yeah, no, not, not elderly at all. I'm trying to have, you know, I feel like very middle-aged now, which, I mean, I'm getting there, I guess. But uh, I've had some younger people, some older people on. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited to have people that are versed in sure. this type of movie. Um, but before we talk about Valley of the Dolls, I ask all of my guests, uh, have you been watching anything recently? I mean, I'm sure you have. You watch movies for a living. But uh, <laughs> anything recently that you like recommend or you think is being sort of underseen or you want people to check out? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm not sure when this is airing, but, you know, with with streaming, it'll, you know, if, you, if you're listening to the show years later, you'll be able yeah. to track this movie down. Uh, but opening, as we're speaking, in New York and in a couple of weeks in Los Angeles is a new documentary called Vision Portraits. It's from a filmmaker named Rodney Evans who did a really terrific gay film called uh, brother to Brother okay. about the Harlem Renaissance and actually featured, uh, I think, the first screen appearance from uh, Anthony Mackie. Um, anyway, he has in recent years been dealing with retinitis pigmentosa and is losing his eyesight, which, you know, obviously for a filmmaker is a very big deal. Wow. So he's made this documentary about not only his own process of, of dealing with his loss of eyesight, but he interviews a, uh, a photographer, a writer, and a dancer choreographer who are also at various levels of blindness and all of whom continue to create. And so it's just this really interesting documentary about, um, you know, how do you continue without this very essential, you know, one of your, yeah. one of your key senses for the work that you're doing. Uh, and just like, you know, the different ways that, that process works, even given those limitations. That sounds amazing. And it, say it, the name of it one more time. Vision Portraits. Vision Portraits. And it's, uh, I guess we playing in theaters and then like VOD soon. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, have you been watching Euphoria at all? On <laughs> I'm I'm behind. I know it just okay. ended, and I've, I've got about three or four to go. That's it's. I can't binge that show. No. I see one episode. I'm like, <laughs> I I think I'm three in now, so I'm probably a couple behind you. And it was one of those shows. I I, I watched the pilot when it first aired, mm -hmm. and I was like, I don't know if I like this. It's so it's just like so much. Um, and it's the same guy that did Assassination. What's it called? Assassination Nation. Is that, yeah. yeah, which I did not like at all. Uh, I, it was mezzo mezzo. Okay. <laughs> but now after watching three of them, I'm like totally in on mm. Euphoria. It's just like that teen soap. 
I think every generation has to have their thing about, oh my God, the kids today are so yeah. much worse than you ever imagined. You know, it's that less than zero sort of thing of like, they're all doing drugs and having crazy sex and in dangerous situations. And, you know, and I don't know if it, is it, is it to, to frighten parents? A to frighten teenagers? To, well, to, to make to, teenagers think they need to up their game? Like, I don't know what the point is, but it's, it's good drama, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like it's, I think it's sort of to frighten parents and then obviously like to titillate both the parents and the teens sure of course and then like this weird nostalgia of like comparing your own teen experience to like this fucking crazy one right uh but i i remember i was i guess like a freshman in high school when kids came out ah there you go um and i would like it took i, I don't think i watched it for a couple more years but that was that was like the big one of my generation that was like parents didn't want you to see totally yes 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 um which weirdly enough a friend of mine did find a like a VHS copy of it at the 99 cent store with the children's movies oh, shit. because it just said kids on the yeah. cover. <laughs> uh, wow. Rude awakening. Mm. Um, what else? Oh, I saw once upon a time in Hollywood, but I'm sure you've talked about that a million on a million podcasts, <laughs> on which I've listened say, to. <laughs> I, think, I think I've done it on like four, okay, yeah, we'll four or five that. now. So just uh, Google me. You'll yes. see, I'll get all my thoughts. Um, <laughs> cool. So, Valley of the Dolls, yes. uh, directed by Mark Robson. Yes. Um, in 1967, from the book that was published only a year earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which yeah, is yeah. crazy that they did it so quickly. Well, it was a huge, huge bestseller. I mean, like, it completely changed the bestseller game at that point. You know, uh, Jacqueline Suzanne was not only, you know, a, a talented author, but a genius at self-promotion. And, you know, she and her husband, Irving Mansfield, just, like, really hit the hit the bricks on this one. You know, there, there are these sort of legendary stories how, like, you know, she, she figured out that books get into the bookstores because the Teamsters take them there. So she would show up at 5 a.m. on the docks with coffee and donuts for the Teamsters and get them on board. And so to make sure that the books were getting into the stores, you know, uh, she had this like Rolodex of all these bookstores across America that she'd ever gone to with the manager's name and their kids' names and all this stuff. And she would just like super schmooze it and work it. She would go into a store and sign every copy because back then, if it had been signed, you could return to the publisher you oh, okay. had to sell it um so she was just you know this like tireless dynamo of getting the thing out there and so yeah for 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 her salesmanship and also because the book itself was so sort of salacious and and you know such a romana clay about hollywood and broadway it was like well who who is this really yeah. you know it yeah it sold like gangbusters so the they they were they were going to make that movie and make it fast uh yeah, I remember reading I, – I read the book before I had ever seen the movie mm -hmm. in – I guess I was in college. And uh, I I hadn't read – like you're in college, so you're trying to read like highbrow stuff <laughs> or whatever. And then I remember one summer my friend and I like bought copies of Valley of the Dolls and we just tore through it. And I was like, oh, I didn't know books could be this fun. <laughs> um, and like, you know, also at that age, if you're, you know, into drugs or get it, like you're just – the glamour of it all. Of course. You don't, yes, you don't yes. really take the lessons – like the – the harsh lessons from it as much as like the glamour. Ooh, pills. I know. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> um, and then the movie I saw, I guess like a few years after I had read the book and the first, like the first viewing of it, I was, I just remember feeling very disappointed by it. Yeah, I mean, like, I think almost any time that you've read the book first, you know, the movie's going to disappoint unless you wind up in a, Harry Potter situation mm. where the books are have such a following that the filmmakers feel like they have to include every single thing or they're going to hear about it on the internet. But back then, you know, uh, you know, obviously 
1967, you're right at that point where they're just about to get rid of the rating system. And, you know, they they can push this movie as a suggested for mature audiences, but there's still a lot they can't do. They can't say they can't show. Um, and also it's a huge book. I mean, the, 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 the action of the film covers about five years. Yeah. And the book is like over 20 years. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. The, the, the book picks up like at the end of world war two and takes you to the mid sixties. So yeah, it's a much broader canvas. I, I, I've always said, I want Todd Haynes to do a Valley of the Dolls miniseries that is as faithful as his Mildred Pierce miniseries. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, that, that example of, I mean, and Mildred Pierce is probably a much better movie than Valley of the Dolls. Uh, but if you've yeah, if you've read the book, like the Todd Haynes version is um, so, so faithful, faithful. Yeah. and includes everything. And this and I mean, aside from the other issues of this movie, like all the scenes seemed very short to me, and like there was just a lot of information missing. Uh, yeah. It would like jump. They've got a lot to pack into two hours. And, and for me, the big thing that that is missing is the fact that you have these three lead female characters, and their friendship and relationship to each other is central to the book. There is no scene in this movie in which all three of them appear on screen together except in a still photograph. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so if you look at it, it's like there's scenes with, you know, Anne and Neely or Anne and Jennifer or Jennifer and Neely, but never all three of them talking to each other on screen at the same time. That's, yeah, it's so insane because you, you don't even really get a sense in the movie that they're friends. Barely, yeah. It's like they're, they're all out on their own, in their own plots, yeah. in their own stories. Um so do you remember the first time that you saw this movie or read this book? Uh, I saw the movie first. Um, okay. I grew up reading the, uh, the the Medved books about bad movies, 50 Worst Films of All Time, Golden oh. Turkey Awards. Sadly, Michael Medved has become a right-wing lunatic now. Right. Harry Medved actually was uh, my boss for a while when I worked at Movies.com. Um, and he's still my Facebook friend. Uh, but anyway, they, they wrote these books in the late 70s, early 80s about bad movies. And they really kind of codified the whole sort of bad movie craze slash discussion, whatever. Like they're the ones who kind of put plan nine from outer space on the Okay. Map. You know, these guys were, these books were really essential at the time. And it was, it wasn't a thing like now where there are entire podcasts and websites devoted to bad movies. It was more kind of an underground phenomenon. So they talk about Valley of the Dolls in 50 Worst Films of All Time, and it just sounded like, and 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 I, I grew up, I was born in 1967, the year this movie came out. So I grew up knowing of, like the book was sort of notorious, and yeah, the yeah, movie yeah. was kind of, you know, notorious as well, but I'd never experienced them at all. Finally, uh, it wasn't until after college, because Fox didn't release this on video for a long time. Like, despite the fact that it was a huge grocer in 1967, they were a little embarrassed about it. So there was there was not I don't think there was ever okay the early on in the in the world of VHS existing there was a company called MVC Magnetic Video Corporation and they licensed a bunch of Fox titles and put out these these VHSs and then those became increasingly harder to find because this was like I said very early on in the home video boom so if to find Valley of the Dolls was a bit of a challenge, and that was like letter. It, it was it wasn't in letterbox. It was pan and scan. They did put it out on laser disc. <laughs> <laughs> so I had somebody who had a laser player made me a, a copy of it. And I finally got to see it, and yeah, it it, it blew me away just because it was. It, you know, it was so campy and so ridiculous. And there's so many things you can point at and go, oh my God, that makes no sense. Or that's ridiculous. Or, you know, why did they leave? Why did they go with that take? You know? Yeah. Um, and then I read the book and the book, you're right. It's, it is such a page turner and it's so 
it, it, it casts such a wider net than the film can, can do. Um, and so I have this weird love hate relationship with both of them in that like, they're kind of absurd and they're kind of campy and you can point and laugh at a lot of things. But then at the same time, they are also, I think, you know, uh, when, when, when Jacqueline Suzanne was a best-selling author and people mocked her, you had like Nora Ephron going on talk shows and saying, no, 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 she is an important feminist author. She is talking about working women Mm -hmm. in a way that other people aren't doing. She's talking about how women are made to suffer for their ambitions. Yeah. And, and not making, making them victims of their circumstance perhaps, but not like blaming them for getting into exactly the, this victimhood. Yeah, exactly. They, yeah. They, 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 they have chosen relationships with men that have not gone well for them. And it's probably the men's fault. So I, I kind of, on the one hand still find humor in both and, and still find them a little ridiculous, but I also can, can take in the sort of feminist read on this and how she really was talking about stuff about women's lives that other authors weren't doing. It certainly weren't doing in a way that was as attractive to a mass marketplace. Yeah. Cause like 1966 is obviously a year before the summer of love. Like it's sort of as that counterculture is starting. Right. And it seems like Jacqueline Suzanne has no interest in the hippies or like the, the counterculture, but it's this, this sort of mainstream yes. version of feminism. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, she is, she loved show business. She, you know, came from a fairly patrician family in Pennsylvania, but she wanted to be where the action was. She moved to New York to be an actress. And she was one of those people that never really quite took off as an actress. She wound up kind of being she's sort of well-known in the early days of television as quote, the best, dressed woman on TV and she would do like commercials and panel shows and stuff. But she had friendships. She was very close to Ethel Merman. Maybe they were lovers. Depends on who you ask. And she, she had a ton of dirt. She had all these amazing stories that were sort of told backstage or, you know, in whispers among the cognoscenti. And so one of the things about Valley is that Nowadays, we're used to celebrity scandal being blasted all over the internet, being, you know, common currency. But back then, you still had the studio system who would, like, quash stories of this star being drunk in public or that star being a closeted gay guy or whatever. And so for her to tell these stories was revelatory in a way because there wasn't a mechanism in place for people to talk about Hollywood or Broadway in terms of the dirt. The dirt. Yeah. You, you know, had like the Kenneth Anger books. Exactly. And that's maybe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so for a lot of people, it was shocking to find out that their beloved stars were grappling with pill issues or infidelity or whatever, you know, because that just wasn't talked about. Wow. And um, so do you think, did Jacqueline Suzanne base the Anne character sort of on herself? Yes, yeah. totally. Uh, you know, she it is a sort of idealized version of herself. But but yeah, a lot of the, their, their track has a lot in common, not with the relationships or her uh, marriage to Irving Mansfield was very happy and very, mm. uh, very productive for both of them. Um, but yeah, she's, she is the Anne character. Neely O'Hara obviously has a lot of Judy Garland in her. Um, and then uh, I think for Jennifer, uh, Carol Landis was one of the main oh, okay. draws, but there were a lot of, uh, you know, sort of beautiful doomed starlets. Sure. That a little Marilyn on. Monroe. A little Marilyn yeah. Monroe. Yeah, definitely. Some other folks like that. And then obviously, you know, Helen Lawson is Ethel Murray. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, and I'd heard 
Neely also a little bit like uh, Betty Hutton because I guess she was an understudy to Ethel Merman at some point. Oh, possibly, yeah. But ironically, it's Betty Hutton who then took over Annie Get Your Gun when MGM fired Judy Garland. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, which they kind of allude to in the movie by having the film that she's making be a Western. Oh, okay. That, that, yeah, that's a reference to that. And then, of course, Judy Garland was originally cast as Helen. Right, which was a, a, a total... I, I, I suspect that they knew it wasn't going to work out, but they just couldn't resist the publicity, which they got, you yeah. know. Um, they, they, yeah, there was a whole weird thing. And at one point, I think, like, Liza Minnelli was actually talked about to play Neely at oh. one point. So it, it, was, it was all very kind of this weird house of cards. But um, I actually have an old episode of... What's My Line? Do you ever watch that? No. It was a very popular game show in the 50s and 60s. And um, it was taped live on Sunday nights at CBS in New York. And then one of the things that they always included at the end was they would bring out the mystery guest. Because the, the point of the show was they, they would, some, somebody would sit down and you'd have to figure out what they do for a living. It was always something kind of bizarre okay. and, you know, took questions to figure it out. And then for the mystery guest, everybody would have to put on blindfolds because the mystery guest was super famous and they would obviously know who they were if they saw them. And they'd have to ask questions, you know, are you known for your work in the theater? And the person would usually sort of disguise their voice and try and, you know, fool the panel. So on this one episode, they had two mystery guests. And at the beginning, it's Judy Garland. And at the end, it's Jacqueline Suzanne, who's announcing that Judy Garland is going to be in Valley. But then, of course, that oh, wow. did not work out. <laughs> no. Yeah, I heard like that they the director wanted her off so much that he would uh, like push her scenes to late in the afternoon and make sure that she was already like fucked up when they started. Filming. Basically. Yeah. Like yeah. if they had gotten her first thing in the morning, it might've worked out. But, but at that point, yeah, by the end of the day, she was, she was a mess and you know, it was, it was all handled very badly. I am glad that she stole her trivia outfits that they oh, nice. made for her <laughs> and wore them at the palladium when she performed later. So, uh, well, that's a small victory, I guess. <laughs> um, and she got, yeah, she got a couple more years <laughs> and there is a recording of, uh, of her doing I'll plant my own tree. Oh, which, okay, so Andre Previn wrote all these songs? <laughs> and his wife, Dory, yes. Okay, and his she sang, Dory. like, it's not the Dionne Warwick version of the song in the movie. It's Dory Previn singing it. Okay, uh, you mean the title song? Yeah. No, that is Dionne Warwick That is Dionne it. Warwick, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dionne Warwick sings the title song, and then there are, I don't have their names in front of me, but other people sang for both Patty Duke and Got Susan it. Hayward. I think Barbara Cook sang for Susan Hayward, but don't quote me on that. Mm. But you, 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 this is very Googleable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, whoever they got to sing for Patty Duke is like a really good choice. Like it sounds like what you would think Patty Duke singing would sound like. And sadly, there is a record called Patty Duke Sing Songs from Valley of the Dolls. Not not good. No, because she because she was like training to sit. She thought she was going to sing her own songs. Yes, and she had you know a lot of uh, like you know she had been a, a big TV star yeah. before that with the Patty Duke show and, and an Oscar winner and an Oscar winner of course yeah but like a lot of teen idols had these sort of singing careers that would put out these novelty singles. There's a reference to it, in fact in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where when when they've got you know Leonardo DiCaprio singing behind the green door you know it was not uncommon for if you were like. Richard Chamberlain or Tab Hunter or like, and, and had a following as an actor, you would record a song, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so Patty Duke had put out some singles as a kid and she had sung in some movies, I think in Billy and a few other ones. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they wound up not using her tracks for, for Valley. They had somebody else sing those songs. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know that until after I'd seen the movie yesterday and I was, I was just looking up stuff about it and I, yeah, I was so surprised cause it, it did sound just like her. It wasn't like, you know, Marnie Nixon or somebody. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, three three main characters. We have Anne Wells, played by Barbara Parkins. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Neely O'Hara, of course, Patty Duke, and then Jennifer North, played yes. by Sharon Tate. Right. And coincidentally, I think the day we're recording this is literally the 50th anniversary of the day that Sharon Tate was murdered. Oh, wow. Which is crazy. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, and I remember, and it's been so long since I've read the book, but Anne is the main character in the book. You, you follow her... Pretty much. I mean, there are moments that are sort of there are chapters that are narrated by other characters, okay. but but Anne is who we is who we begin and end with for sure. And in the movie, I think because of Patty Duke's performance, which I'm still totally like grappling with, is it great? <laughs> is it terrible? It but does she, occupy that weird yeah, space. But she yeah. just totally takes over the movie. As she is invested for sure. It, it, it's sort of like you know. Like Faye Dunaway will apparently never have a sense of humor or a sense of perspective about Mommy Dearest, but that's a performance that is committed. Yeah. You know, she is giving it everything, and she is going. She's she is aiming at a very specific target. Same with uh, Elizabeth Berkeley in Showgirls, I would say. Like she specifically, she was doing what her director asked her to do, but also like she is that is a that is a no holds barred performance, and Patty Duke is giving that same level of intensity. I mm-hmm. think in this movie, and is it like. People uh, see it as over the top, obviously. It is, I mean, or camp because no one else. I mean, I guess Susan Hayward to some extent is matching her, but like no yeah. one else in the movie is matching her intensity. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, th- this is a, again, I think a movie that you find is at this weird cross, this weird juncture of things. You know, it's a it's a book that comes out that's a huge hit in the late sixties, but it's about old school show business, and it's released by a major studio at a time where they are just on the verge of. Getting rid of the of of the you know uh, the, the 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 Hayes Code basically okay, yeah. and adopting you know the ratings instead. So this is a movie that wants to be scandalous but can't for the most part. So it, it like if you'll notice when somebody says a word that is remotely cursish, you know, like ass or damn, they will cut to someone else flinching or being shocked, you know, yeah, uh, like to underscore. Ooh, ooh we just we we said that, you know, yeah, we're we're really gonna, you know, and and, and yeah, and fag, they and can fag, say a million times. Totally, yes, yes, yes. That's absolutely okay. Um, so it, it's a movie that, that that you know I think if it had come out a couple years earlier or a couple years later would be completely different. Mm. But in 1967, it finds itself teetering in between these two things, and so you know I, I think also they 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 weren't going after a young audience you no. know with it, but uh, it was like the opposite of euphoria or like uh, trying to scandalize the the parents maybe absolutely more than yeah, actually yeah, get yeah. the kids to watch it. You know, and so, so you've got like the people, like the writers were were very kind of old Hollywood people as well. I mean, Harlan Ellison at one point did do a treatment for the film. He wrote an outline because as he describes it, I was hot for 30 seconds before the Oscar came out. <laughs> uh, he, he wrote this movie called The Oscar, which is this legendary disaster oh, sure. okay. of the era of like a year earlier. Uh, another sort of tawdry Hollywood behind the scenes movie. Um but uh, but yeah, they wind up going with like Dorothy Kingsley and Helen Deutsch, who had been around for decades, and Mark Robeson, who was very much an old hand and who did not treat the actresses well at all. That's what I um, read, yeah. Patty Duke writes extensively in her memoir, Call Me Anna, about how terrible they were and ha- uh, the, how, how terrible he was to them and how like she would rebel by like stuffing her face with donuts. And, wow. and, 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 and she felt like he kept a lot of the worst takes. And, and you know, you see things like, 
there's that montage of like Neely becoming a star where she's taking singing lessons and exercising and doing all this stuff. And there's that weird like freeze frame of her spitting water out of her mouth. Yeah. There's the infamous like necklace under her boobs at the telethon performance. And it's like, okay, someone was out to get you clearly because like a director who didn't want to make you look like an asshole wouldn't have let these takes in or would have like reshot it or something. Yeah. It's weird. Like I, I've seen this movie. Well, I, I, I watched the whole thing yesterday and then I watched like a, like the first hour of it again this morning. And it's like these little errors almost yeah. that I feel like it took me a few times to really get what was going on because I was, you just see like the big bright mod colors mm -hmm. so much. Um, and then you see her performance. And so, yeah, like some weird angles, like weird cuts, like some things are just like in shadow the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very odd. And so Mark Robson, he directed Peyton Place before this. That was like his big. Right. Which, well, I mean, it was, it was one of his many okay, big his... movies. But yeah, but Peyton Place is an interesting antecedent because it too was this sort of scandalous bestseller that then got turned into a movie. And that was like 10 years before this. So they, they really had to like watch their P's and Q's about what they could get away with. So I guess the idea that he had managed to wrestle this novel that was far dirtier than anything that Hollywood really knew what to do with and turned into a hit movie made him the obvious choice to do mm -hmm, the same thing one. Um, and, and like Patty Duke, her sort of persona at this time was super clean cut. She was just coming off of the Patty Duke show. Uh, yeah, th this is basically the equivalent of like when an actress who's been on a Disney channel show, uh, plays a junkie whore in a movie that plays at Sundance. It's like, I'm not a kid actor anymore. I have more, I, I, I'm capable of more things. I'm going to, I'm going to blow your mind. It, well, yeah. actually it's, it's exactly what Elizabeth Berkeley was trying to do mm -hmm. with Showgirls. You know, like, you know me as and this. And Zendaya is doing it in Euphoria. <laughs> exactly. You know me as this clean cut child star, but look out everybody. Cause I'm going to get naughty. Yeah. And like, it's weird how, yeah, sometimes that totally works. And then sometimes it totally backfires. Yeah. And I mean, I guess like looking back on what we know now about what Patty Duke was struggling with. Yes. Uh, sh there was a lot of parallels between her and Neely, but at the time, like the audience didn't know that. So they just didn't buy her in this role. Do you think? Or? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's a weird thing again, like this movie was a huge hit when yeah. it came out, but it was not well regarded. Mm -hmm. You know, it got pretty uniformly terrible reviews. Even Jacqueline Suzanne sort of was mortified by it, but she, she said one bad thing about it on like the cruise ship where they premiered the film and then never bad mouthed it again because she knew it was going to help her sell a lot of books. Um, you know, uh, and and so yeah, but what Warner Brothers, like I said, took forever for them to, to to get around to putting it out on video because they were sort of embarrassed by it. Um, but yeah, uh, Patty Duke is weirdly paralleling a lot of her own grapples with you know with mental illness and whatnot in this role, and is trying to you know bring some some reality to it, but is working with a director who is clearly trying to undercut her. Yeah, uh, that's so crazy that this. I mean, director would would like hate his actresses so much that he would try to ruin his own movie. <laughs> well, yeah, apparently he was very, he was good friends with, uh, with Paul Burke okay. who played lion. And in fact, the next movie that, that Robeson directed starred him. Ugh. It was this, this really weird movie called daddy's gone a hunting, which is a, about abortion at a time when it was still illegal. Okay. And basically it's about this woman getting stalked by her ex who's mad at her for having gotten one, an abortion. And then she's pregnant with her husband, but he's trying to like kill her or the baby. I, it's, it's a, it's a weird movie. It is weird. I mean, his performance is strange. He seems like 
maybe a little too old for the part. He does. Like there are moments where you, you can kind of tell they're doing that, like the scotch tape on the yeah. scalp to sort of pull his face back a bit. And yeah, he doesn't have any chemistry with either of the women that he's supposed no, to be not at in, all. in love with. And yeah, I mean, like if you read the book, like Lion Burke, he's, hot. he's a big swinging dick, yeah. you know, and Paul Burke just doesn't quite muster that same level of like machismo. No. And, and then, um, Jennifer's love interest, Tony. Yes. Uh, for some reason, I am intrigued by this actor. He reminds me of like Anthony Perkins a little bit. Of uh, Tony Scotty, really? Yeah, like he has that sort of rat-like face. I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it was something. He, yeah, he, I don't think he ever acted again. Okay. He was mainly a music guy. Oh. Uh, like Scotty Brothers wound up with sort of a was a was a label. I remember for a while, like in the eighties, I think like the Eddie and the Cruisers soundtrack huh. was a Scotty Brothers record. Uh, but yeah, he he didn't really do that much other stuff. But he was, I, I mean, and, and again, I think that character I've heard is supposed to be at least partially based on Dean Martin. Oh. So they were going for that kind of like you know Italian crooner, you yeah. know, of the Sinatra Martin, you know. Ilk. Interesting. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have like the charisma of a Dean Martin, but it's it's like I mean, I guess if you know where his plot is going, you're right. just like, oh, this is this tragic guy, <laughs> yeah. and you get that. And then you've got Lee Grant as his sister, <sighs> who is just completely like. A, whether she understands what movie she's in or has just decided to put herself in her own movie, she is giving this weird, wonderful, dark. I have secrets performance that's just that's always riveting. Yeah, no, she's so fantastic and uh yeah, doesn't get much to do in the movie. Um and then let's talk about Sharon Tate. Yes. Uh, so this was her this was like her first this was before what was the movie that they I, talked about in Once Upon a Time in it Hollywood? Was it, it, she goes to see the wrecking crew. The wrecking crew. So this was before the wrecking crew, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it's after I think she had already been in like uh Don't Make Waves okay. and a couple other things. But yeah, she was very much a star on the rise, which is why there's that joke in it, it, the, the whole scene in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where she's trying to explain who she is to the to the people who work at the theater. Like, oh, I was in Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. Like, oh, Barbara Parkins? No. no. Patty Duke? No, the other one, <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, she it was definitely, you know, she had, she, that same year was Fearless Vampire Killers, which was the one movie she made with Roman Polanski. Okay, okay no, Don't Make Waves was also 1967, so a very busy year for her. But before that, she had mainly done, like, a couple of TV things, and, uh, and I, I guess I think she was a model, mm -hmm. uh, but this was like a, her first sort of really big, like, you know, I am one of the stars of this movie. Yeah. Was. And her performance, I mean, to me, she's like obviously a lot more charismatic than Barbara Parkins. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I felt, I don't know, maybe I just got used to her acting style, like during the course of the movie. But at the beginning I felt she was like very mannered and like playing sort of this weird innocent but then by the end i thought i don't know i thought it was very touching what barbara parkins no sharon, oh, sharon tate, tate. Yeah. yeah i mean sharon tate is is saddled with some really terrible as is everyone in the movie saddled <laughs> with some really terrible dialogue let them droop yeah you know all of that stuff and you know that 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 weird thing where like you know when neely's crying in the dressing room with mel and she pops in and says that witch ought to be boiled in oil and then pops out again <laughs> it's like like a laugh-in thing where like the door opens and the door closes again you know um but yeah, I, I think she brings a sort of haunted innocence to the role, which it's impossible to look at without thinking about her off-screen tragedy, exactly. you know? And so weirdly, I think that that's made the performance better over the years because she is playing somebody who is sort of doomed. Um, but, you know, I, I think her death scene is genuinely moving. Like, it is one of the more restrained 
pieces of, of the movie and, and she's really pouring it on in a way that is effective. So like she at least gets that moment. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I think after seeing, uh, you know, Patty Duke just like scream and wail the whole time, right. this very like still moment of her just matter of factly taking the pills and lying down on the bed is yeah. touching. Uh, but it is so odd I don't. I don't remember how it went in the book, but the fact that is she, is she committing suicide because she's afraid that she could die, or just because she's going to have to have her breast removed? It's well in the book and in the movie. It's, it, I think it's both. It's about the breast removed because again, she has been told by her mother her entire life that all she has to offer is her body. You know, and that that's the, she's not talented. She's she can't do anything. She's just sexy. And in the book specifically. She has she's in a relationship with a senator okay. who uh, and and and, uh, you know, at first she's worried that he's going to leave her because she can't have children because they, they perform a hysterectomy. And he's like, I don't care. That doesn't matter. But what he goes, he goes, all I care about is is you. But then he starts talking about her breasts and how beautiful she is and how sexy she is. And then she realizes, oh, shit, like he's going to leave me when this happens. And so she kills herself. And in the movie. It it, it kind of comes down to the just this notion of like she has been uh, worn down not only by her own personal tragedies but by the sense of of every of the, that she's always gotten from mostly the men in her life but also her mother also Tony's sister that she just exists as a body mm. and if she isn't a body anymore she is nothing yeah no that that makes sense but yeah it would be nice to have to have that extra like push from her senator lover or whatever. Right. Um, I mean, together. I think they, they give her one line where she basically says, all I've ever had is a body and, mm -hmm. and now, I won't even have, now I won't even have that. You know? Yeah. And it, it is crazy to think, like to this tragic ending, but yeah, you can't help but watch it in the, the frame of, oh, like her actual tragic ending was a million times worse than this. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Ugh. Um, and then, okay, so let's talk a little bit too about Susan Hayward and her... Uh, so she replaced Judy Garland as Helen Lawson. Right. And I don't, like, she was an Oscar winner. I don't think I've ever seen one of her movies aside from this. Uh, I loved her in it, though. Yeah, she was a big star. And, yeah, she she won an Academy Award for I Want to Live. Um, she had done, in the six, a few years before this, was in a very popular um, kind of melodrama called Backstreet, which was a remake of an old 30s movie. Uh, it's a Ross Hunter production. He's the guy who did, like, I think he did Peyton Place, but he did, like, uh, Madame X and a lot of the sort of, like, Lana Turner 50s movies. He's very glossy. Like, everyone's dripping with jewels and wearing these fabulous gowns and, you know, and, and suffering in mink as, uh, I think... Is somebody describes Barbara Parkins in, in, in Valley of the Dolls. I forget who now who. Um, but, you know, yeah, Backstreet was this sort of melodrama where she's a fashion designer and she's in love with John Gavin, but he's married to someone else. So she's his sort of like side piece and the tragedy of all of that. Uh, but before that had, you know, played a lot of sort of like, you know, tough women, but, but you know, glamorous women. So, um, you know, she's, she's well cast and she does what she can with, again, some crazy dialogue. Crazy dialogue. I mean, so many of this, like her scenes, you like even if you're sort of trailing off or like checking your phone or whatever, mm -hmm. when she comes on, you're like glued to the screen. Yeah. I feel Whoa, like. what is that? Uh, yeah. And the final scene um, in the bathroom with the wig is one of the all-time greats. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like there were nothing else in this movie that was like pinpoint targeted at gay men. It's like, yeah. you know, two women fighting in a washroom and a wig is removed and thrown in a toilet. Bam. Like that's, you know, that's entertainment. Oh my God. Yeah. Have they ever done uh, 
RuPaul's Drag Race challenge about Valley at all? So oh, I don't think God, so. They should. I don't. I don't know Drag Race well enough. But there was back in the nineties. Uh, there was a there was a theater company called Theater Agogo. Um, this was very much of the era of like the real life Brady Bunch and that okay. kind of thing. And the, these guys put on Valley as a stage play, and they would do the screenplay just straight. Like they didn't change any of the words. They would just sort of like raise an eyebrow here or there or do something really low budget. Like when, when Neely catches Ted and the blonde woman in, in, in the pool, it's like literally the guy playing Ted and this woman standing in a big, like, you know, ice tub that you would buy yeah. at like party <laughs> city. Um, and uh, where was I going with this? Oh, so anyway, so like it was, and 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 a drag queen would always play Helen Lawson. Like Jackie Beat played Helen Lawson in the L.A. run, and it eventually moved off Broadway. Oh wow! And she played it there. Um, and so you know, it was it was very campy and very knowingly overdone. And um, and was it, that sort of like around the time that? It was released initially on VHS and uh, Laserdisc. This was a, a, a little before. Well, it was it was after the Laserdisc, okay. but it was before what had. Th this was around like ninety four, ninety five, and then uh, about ninety six or ninety seven. I forget exactly when uh, Fox finally put out the uh, the finally put out a letterboxed VHS, which was a, a first, and then um, in the two thousands they did a really great. DVD, which admittedly I love because I'm on it. <laughs> oh, are, I think that might be the copy that we have that I couldn't get. It, I think it's scratched and I couldn't watch it oh, in our bummer. DVD player. Well, there's a, the, yeah, the, I think you can get this on YouTube. They, they, there was a really long kind of original, you know, sort of DVD extra on it called uh, Gotta Get Off This Merry-Go-Round uh, that that uh, the the great Renee Smallwood produced. And uh, it's me and it's uh, Bruce Valanche and uh, Ted Casablanca. Oh, wow. The, the, the guy who who was the E-Gossip e columnist. Which, yeah, yeah, that was the first time I knew him as a kid and I didn't realize that Within that was Where the name, name came yeah. from. Oh, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Barbara Parkins is in it and, and Jackie Beat and uh, several of the people who were involved in that theater go-go show. Kate Flan who you might know from The Office played uh, Neely. Oh wow! Okay. And so like she comes out to do the telethon, and like the the necklace is is taped with like big black electrical tape under her breast, like from the moment she appears. So it's there for the whole number, and she actually sings "It's Impossible," and she talks in the in that DVD extra about how like. It's such a hard song to sing because there's so many like lyrics and it's like the, it's impossible to tell you right now if I tried it I'd never know how gee lucky for me far as I know far as I see I'm a winner boy I make a it's just, it, it's it's a roller coaster yeah so how did you like how did you get involved in that DVD release like what um, were you doing at the time a, a friend I was I was a, a an editor at the Advocate at the time I was the arts entertainment editor and a friend of mine worked at the company. This was this was sort of the golden age of DVD extras. Like once streaming came in, a lot of this got wiped out. But he worked at this company that would create like menus and do other stuff for DVD releases. And he wasn't working on Valley, but somebody else that he knew was. And he was like, oh, you need to talk to my friend Alonzo. <laughs> and so I went in and did like two really long interviews. I remember when I was done thinking, okay, I could be hit by a bus right now and I have – I have served my purpose in this earth that I have talked about that. Like all I've, I've shared everything I know about Valley of the Dolls on a DVD. And so, you know, I'm good to go. Wow. Everything oh, else so cool. is just gravy now. That's so exciting. <laughs> um, all right. So I, every week I will read an excerpt of, uh, the Paul Rowan review for yes. the movie that we're talking about. Um, if this is the first episode of high camp that you're listening to, 
Uh, this podcast stole its name from a duo of books also called High Camp by um, a amateur film critic and professional librarian from Duluth, Minnesota named Paul Rowan. And he wrote reviews of over 400 movies that he considered camp and gay classics. And here's a little bit of his review of Valley of the Dolls. Back in the mid-60s, 67 or thereabouts, almost every gay man I knew was reading Valley of the Dolls, Jacqueline Suzanne's trashy best-selling novel about doped and dopey starlets. We all trooped off to see the movie version too. It is, of course, a camp classic of glitzy Hollywood excess. Nowadays, when I watch the film on video, its sheer wretchedness embarrasses the hell out of me. I liked this shit once upon a time. I know, however, that there exists a core group of gays who have remained steadfastly loyal to this kitsch masterwork. The camp quality mainly resides in two members of the large cast of characters, Neely O'Hara, played by Patty Duke, and ostensibly modeled on Judy Garland, and Helen Lawson, an Ethel Merman clone uh, delineated by Susan Hayward. Miss Duke chews the scenery something awful, apparently operating under the firmly held conviction that the only way to play an out-of-control personality is to deliver an out-of-control performance. At one point, Neely marries a fashion designer who's reputed to be homosexual. Ted Casablanca is not a fag, and I'm the dame who can prove it. This movie is so sexually backward that, perplexingly, men who are designated gay are only permitted to have sex with women. Neely divorces Ted after she discovers him fooling around in the swimming pool with a girl. The role of Helen Lawson proved difficult to cast. Ironically enough, Judy Garland was hired, then she was fired. There was nothing wrong with her performance, she simply didn't show up for work half the time. Susan Hayward was less was a less than satisfactory replacement since her singing had to be dubbed. She has just one number, a certifiably insane piece of work entitled, I'll Plant My Own Tree. <laughs> it's my yard, so I will try hard to welcome friends I have yet to know. It is, in a sense, a showstopper. Uh... So you were familiar with these books? Yes, I, I, I have something in relation with them. Okay. I, I, I had read. Have you met him? I, no, I've not. Mm. I read. I, I got the first one. Uh, I was living in Los Angeles in the mid '90s and uh, writing a film column for a no longer extant bar rag called Planet Homo. <laughs> this was in the pre-internet, so there were still like all these little magazines you could pick up at the bar that would have like listings of events and you know interviews with local club kids or whatever. And so I I did their I was their film critic. And weirdly enough, that's how I got into the LA Film Critics Association oh, with, my, with my Planet Homo clips. <laughs> so I got the book and I devoured it because I'm, you know, this is so my thing. And I had kind of, two, well, I had a few issues. First of all, um, my definition of camp, I tend to hew more towards the Susan Sontag definition of, you know, sort of accidental comedy. Yeah, failed seriousness. Failed seriousness, exactly. And and the author, I think, kind of makes it more of a blanket thing to anything that is of gay interest. Yeah, he says, like, yeah, his definition of camp is anything with intrinsic interest to homosexuals. Right. Which gives you, like, a lengthy guidebook, I guess, but it doesn't really Yeah, do. and that's fine if you want to write that book, but then don't call it high camp because that's something else. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, also it, it, it seemed that and again, th this is as as I'm now, you know, in my entering my dotage, I'm <laughs> understanding that each generation has its own idea of what's campy and what's essential and all that sort of stuff. So I was sort of annoyed by the fact that, 
you know, he was his, his stuff was so concentrated on like the forties and fifties that I was like, well, where's, where's Barbarella? You know, like that's a, that's a movie that I would think of as an immediate go-to. I can't remember if Xanadu was in there, but like, I don't think it is. No, uh, no Barbara Streisand, no Liza Minnelli, uh, Greg Gardens isn't in there. Yeah. yeah it's like, so again, it's like he, he's sort of showing his age, but we all do it. You know, I'm sure if uh, my first book was a thing called 101 Must See Movies for Gay Men, which if you read it now, I'm sure reads very much like if you're a Gen Xer, you know? Um, so I get that part and I understand it. And then there's uh, uh, what I really admire in your attempt to tackle this <laughs> filmography for this podcast. There's so many Hercules movies oh, and, yeah. like, and shitty Hercules knockoffs. And it's kind of like, okay, throw in a couple. I understand. But if you just fapped it to Gordon Scott for years, like that doesn't make it intrinsically interesting to anybody but you. There's like, yeah, 20 Hercules. I mean, we'll see how far we get on this podcast. Yeah. If we get to all you of know, them. Must stay like <laughs> yeah. all of the, so the, the all like, the Tarzans, the weird, like Italian Tarzans. Yeah. And yeah, stuff. yeah. That just seems like the trop. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, the, the crazy thing about Valley though, is like, I think that the culture somewhere took a turn where like, Criterion Collection now is the yeah. one who put it out. And you've got these, you know, the, these serious essays from the likes of like, you know, Glenn Kenny and, and Kim Morgan. And it's like, okay, so this used to be like, this is a movie that remained alive for a long time because of gay men finding it hilarious. And now suddenly we're supposed to take it seriously because serious people are telling us this mm -hmm. and a serious company like Criterion is putting it out. And, um, and, and if you look at the Criterion release, like there is no hint or mention of its longstanding existence as a camp classic. And I think that things can be more than one thing at a time. You know, like one of the things I love about John Waters' movie Pecker is that you can find something absurd and also revere it at the same time. And I think we are allowed to chuckle at the hairdos and the histrionics of Valley of the Dolls and at the same time understand its cultural and historical context. And so I, I would just, I would hate to think that anything is going to lean too far in one direction. Yeah. Like once it enters into the canon, yeah. you can't have it as this object of camp. Do you think that that is like, because of just the aging of the movie and like things are elevated after they've been out and had a cultural impact for a certain amount of time? Or is it more like gay culture? There's this moment that we're in where, gay culture has uh, become more like centered in culture in general? I, I think both of those things play a role in it. I mean, definitely th there's a thing about old movies where, you know, if you weren't there when they came out and, and were sort of part of the current cultural conversation, you can, you have to look back at it. And so if you look back at something like Valley divorced of its moment and what people thought about it when it came out, you know, it's easier to, to to sort of like, oh no, this is a this is a this is operating in the tradition of the of the women's picture, and it is you know saying real things about mental illness and addiction and about how women are treated in the show business world. Um, you know, and and I think gay culture is also always kind of evolving and finding different things funny and being interested in different things, mm -hmm. and so. I grew up, you know, like I said, in, in a moment where where Valley was just kind of considered this hoot, you know. But uh, I think that that what what the kids think is funny is going to be completely different, and what they look at as their camp icons is going to be, I don't know, hocus pocus or whatever, yeah. you know. So it's it's it is a constantly evolving thing, and so I love it when people talk about 
art as though it were sort of fixed in time. And like, once you think this one thing about it, that's all you can ever think about it. And everything changes. And the art itself doesn't change. The movie doesn't change at all. But the way we look at it and the world that it exists in is constantly moving forward. And so we have to sort of constantly reassess how we look at things. You know, how do we feel about the blackface number in Holiday Inn? You know, how do we feel about, you know, the, the racism or like date rape implications of 16 candles you know it's it's a constantly changing thing and it's not that we have to cancel movies or you know put them on the blacklist but at the same time we have to sort of say well that's what you could get away with then here's how we look at it now what do we think about it through these eyes versus those eyes and what's still worth gleaning if we have to just sort of work around the stuff that that is now appalling yeah i mean that philosophy seems like pretty obvious and straightforward to me and yet I don't and I don't know if it is like in an age thing or or do people like and maybe I'm generalizing younger people in their 20s maybe would have issues and and try to like cancel certain movies uh do people grow out of that or is it or is it truly a generational thing you know, it'll be interesting to see because, you know, for example, you have like the the the, the, the aforementioned 20 somethings like, you know, watching Friends on Netflix and being appalled Which is, by it. Well, and it is like. And no, and they're not wrong. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a lot to be appalled by. But like I grew up on nothing but reruns. I yeah. grew up before there was cable and before there were there were VCRs. So like I watched 50s and 60s sitcoms growing up in the 1970s and only maybe later kind of really thought about, oh, what are they saying about women? What are they saying yeah. about black people? Whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And and so yeah, I don't know if if we've reached a point now where cancellation is permanent or where I think what's going to happen is those 20 somethings are going to get older and they'll be so appalled by whatever the generation behind them is offended by. Yeah. That then they'll maybe relax a bit. So yeah, everyone <laughs> becomes reactionary as they age. <laughs> or you just you, you just you know you understand there's a wider scope of yeah. things and there's a you know things fall into place in a different context and and believe me there's something that is being made right now that no one thinks is offensive that 20 years from now we'll go oh my god what were we thinking that's just how the world Absolutely. works. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that that is funny to think about. Um, all right, well, this was. An amazing discussion. Uh, the last thing that I ask all my guests is if we were to write a third volume of High Camp, or if we, well, you've already written your own book, <laughs> but like, um, so this, these, these books stop at about 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, what movie from post 1994 would you nominate to be in the third volume of High Camp? Well, if I were strictly going on the, you know, of, of queer interest uh, uh, mm. uh, thing. Um, I would, this is maybe a little bit of a cheat, but I would say 1995's The Celluloid Closet, which oh, is a really God, interesting yeah. documentary about sort of the history of how LGBT characters have been treated in Hollywood cinema. Um, if I were specifically going on my definition of high camp, um, hmm, gosh, so many choices. Uh, I would, uh, you know, and, and while this is a film that I, I, I think again, like Valley, you can interpret it as a, as, as a goofy camp item, or you can look at it seriously for its treatment of, you know, women, um, and, and, and how they're treated particularly in the world of show business, then I would have to say showgirls. Showgirls. Yes. I mean that, I think that is like becoming the consensus, uh, camp object from like the late 20th century from that generation. Uh, did you, did you get to see when they, um, 
did the screening at Hollywood Forever a few years ago. I did not. I've seen yeah. the footage of I mean, Elizabeth yeah. Berkeley being there, which I was thrilled about because, again, like, you know, it took a while for Patty Duke to come around to want to talk about Valley. Faye Dunaway will probably never come mm-hmm. around about Mommy Dearest, but I hope that Elizabeth Berkeley eventually comes to. And she's she's obviously started the process of publicly embracing showgirls because I think that you can't really blame her for this movie. She's doing what she was asked and she was doing what she thought was, you know, appropriate for the for the tone of the film. And it is. Yeah. Like he Verhoeven was telling her to do a very specific thing and she was following his orders and she didn't. I mean, she didn't have the experience or like the training to maybe understand like what was going on around her and how she would look. Absolutely, yeah. And and she was, I think, really tragically sort of left out to dry. Absolutely. So so I understand why for a long time she didn't want to talk about. Yeah, there's like per, like personal vitriol. Like, yeah. it, it, I mean, I was reading just a little bit of the the press at the time, and it is crazy. Now I don't I don't know that that would happen, or like a young actress would be blamed in the same way. Right. Um, but it was like, yeah, this combination of just making fun of her and like slut shaming and then just like how dare you think that you deserve to be a movie star when you're so obviously like incapable of yeah they, 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 she was definitely ganged up upon and and so and and with showgirls like I, I i like i said i definitely see both sides like my husband takes it completely seriously yeah he, i think i'm more on that side. you know and the and the, the further away from the original release i get the more i i sort of lean to like verhoeven knows exactly what he's doing here and if you put it in the context of other verhoeven films there's a couple of interesting documentaries about this one of them uh you don't know me which just premiered it premiered at Tribeca and just screened at Outfest. It's going to come out this year. And then there's another one that's in the works that I am that I was interviewed for called Goddess uh, that are, I think, both films kind of taking a look at this movie from, from a, you know, now that we have like 25 years or so of distance to kind of put it in more of a cultural context and understand it in terms of Verhoeven's earlier work and what his, you know, how does, how does it stack up next to something like Spetters or The Fourth Man? Yeah. You know, I think people thought, oh, from the director of RoboCop. And it's like, no, you have to go a little deeper. I mean, that. he had just done Basic Instinct a few years before, right. which isn't like that much of a tonal difference. And yet one of them is, was extremely successful at the time and the other one wasn't exactly. Yeah. So th- there's a, there's a whole showgirls revival. Wow. Yeah. I can't wait to see both of those documentaries. Uh, yeah. I think, I mean like Anita Hill, Monica Lewinsky and Elizabeth <laughs> Berkeley were like the three <laughs> biggest misogynist victims of the nineties. I, I would not disagree with that. Um, all right. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug to talk to people about oh, all of your myriad projects? Yeah. Sure, yes. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, I'm the film reviews editor at The Wrap. Uh, I co-host Linoleum Knife, and thank you for saying such nice things it's, about yeah, it. I can't miss it every week. Uh, I also co-host uh, the uh, Breakfast All Day and Who Shot You podcasts. And, um, you know, if you happen to be listening to this episode in December, I wrote this book called Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. Uh, and it's available on Amazon and places where you buy books. So pick it up. Cool. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank it's you for really me. an honor to have you. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, you know, this is this is a fascinating idea for a for a <laughs> show. And I, I, when you mentioned those books, I was like, I had forgotten that those books existed. And so I love that you're taking oh, this cool. this deep a dive. It's yeah, really exciting. I think I like there was like a Slate article maybe eight or nine years ago mm-hmm. talking about them, and I bought them just like online on a, at a used bookstore and right. I sort of didn't look at them for years and I was like just thinking of a new project to do and I saw them on my bookshelves and I was like, oh, 
I'll try this. 400 episodes. We'll see how far I get. <laughs> Best of luck. Oh, my God. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, you can follow this podcast at High Camp Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Ruckerbry. That's R-U-C-K-E-R-B-R-Y. I can spell my own name. Uh, please, if you like this podcast, rate us five stars, review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about it. If there's, um, you know, people that love old movies or LGBT people in your life that need another podcast to listen to, tell them to listen to High Camp. All right. I will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.